Again, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our Father, God, this is our prayer, Lord. Lord, we pray that our love would abound more and more, Lord, and not just a shallow love, Lord, but a love, a love with knowledge and all discernment. Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts, Lord, with with a joy, Lord, as we continue to reflect on our relationship with you, Lord, a, a desire to glorify you, Lord, with every ounce of our being, Lord, that we would grow more and more like your son, Lord, that we would be pure and blameless for the day of his return, God. God, we pray all of this for Country Oaks, Lord, for each individual Christian that is in this room, Lord, to your glory, for your name, that you may be praised. In your son's name we pray, amen. Today we're going to be continuing uh, our uh, journey through the book of Philippians. Last week we finished up Paul's personal greeting. He had a formal greeting and he uh, followed that up with a more personal greeting where he really proclaimed his love, gratitude, and joy for the Philippian church. Today we're going to be switching gears because Paul switches gears in this letter and we're going to be looking at a prayer. In fact, many of Paul's epistles and letters to the different churches that he was uh, associated with uh, had had prayers in them, and Philippians is no exception. Philippians one nine through eleven is a prayer, most likely I'm guessing a prayer that uh, Paul prayed for the church over and over again daily. An example of a prayer that he had for this church that we have learned he loved so much, and, and I really love this because if you wanted to know what Paul would pray for us as as a church what he would pray for Country Oaks, it's probably something close to what we read in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. As a pastor, I I love this because it shows me the type of prayers I should be praying for the church. And I would say this, I think this is an example of the type of prayers we should be praying for loved ones, family members, those uh, that uh, you are praying for because of your love for the church. This is just an example, again, Paul has given us on how to pray. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. It's a prayer Paul prayed for the church. And really, there's three parts to this prayer. There's a request that Paul asks of God, a request, and then he gives the purpose of that request and, and the results that he's looking for uh, from this request. And so... There's three points of the sermon this morning as we break up this passage into three parts. The request, the purpose, and the result. The request, the purpose, and the result. So let's start with the request. In this prayer, again, Paul makes one main request that kind of governs the entire prayer. He prays that the church's love would grow. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer 
that your love may abound more and more. Again, this request governs the whole prayer. And let me start by saying what, 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 what Paul's not praying for. Pointing out what he's not praying for. Paul is not praying that the church would have love. He's praying that the church's love would abound more and more. This church already had love. They have proven to be a loving church. They didn't need love. Remember Acts 16. We started this whole sermon series by looking at the the founding of this church. Who who was the first convert in Philippi? It was Lydia. What did she do right after God brought saving grace to her life? She showed hospitality. Where Acts 16, 15 says this, and after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Lydia showed loving hospitality to Paul and his companions. Remember the Philippian jailer? What did he do right after God softened his heart? Acts 16.33 says this, He took them, that's Paul and Silas, He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He took them out of prison and he personally washed their wounds. These are two founding members of this church and they showed great love to Paul and his companions. Remember one of the main purposes is Paul, Paul wrote this letter in the, in the first place. To, to thank the church for their support, uh, a gift of love as he was in prison. And this wasn't the first time that they have sent a gift to Paul financially. In fact, this was such a generous church. Paul uses them as an example in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. He says this about them, that their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they have given according to their means, or gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In other words, they begged Paul. They begged Paul to take their money, that they could be a part of the relief of the saints, uh, they could be part of, of giving to these Christians, brothers and sisters in need. Again, this was a loving church. And this should come as no surprise, because love is one of the key characteristics of a Christian. It's a fruit of the Spirit. In fact, it's the first one listed in Galatians 5.22. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit, but it's also one of the core Christian virtues. The three that we see over and over again, faith, hope, and love. And out of the three, love is the greatest. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says this, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. In fact, love is so important that, that if a person claims to be a Christian and is not characterized by love, that person should question their salvation. 1 John 4, 8 says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that in a, in a verse. 
So again, Paul doesn't pray that this church would have love. Of course they have love. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a church. They wouldn't be true Christians, truly converted. Paul doesn't pray that they would have love. He prays that their love may abound more and more. He prays that their love would grow and grow and grow and grow. In fact, the word translated abound means something like to to have more than enough or to overflow in great abundance. Paul wasn't praying that this church would would have love. He was praying that they would overflow in love with great abundance. Again, verse 9 says this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now what's interesting about verse 9 is is that there's no object in this verse. Paul just says that, that, that he's praying that their love may abound, but but love of what? There's no object to this love that's stated in this verse. Now, obviously, Paul probably had in mind the greatest commandment. I, I'm assuming that that was just assumed as he was writing this, the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But to be honest, I think Paul was probably thinking the second greatest commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's why I think Paul was emphasizing that in in his prayer, because Paul was concerned about the unity of the Philippian church. We're going to see that throughout the letter, that that there's these hints that Paul is, is trying to seek unity within this church. If there was one fault of this church, there was at least two ladies that weren't unified, but it seems like there was some kind of disunity that was threatening the church at some level. And so Paul is praying that love would abound. And that's because love is key to harmony and unity. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 3.12. He says this, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, So you also must forgive. And above all these, it's a big statement there. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul wants to see the church unified in perfect harmony, so he prays for love. Love is just so important. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's the greatest Christian virtue. It's the greatest and the second greatest commandment. It's what binds everything together in in unity and perfect harmony. No wonder Paul prays for love for this church. In fact, I would say this. If you truly cared about someone, why wouldn't you pray for their love? If they're not a Christian... Pray for their salvation. Pray that God would bring spiritual life to their dead souls and pray that that life would produce love, love of God that would overflow to love of others. If you are praying for someone who is a Christian, pray that their love may abound more and more. 
And listen, not just any love, not just a shallow feeling, not just a superficial love, not just niceness or peaceability with people, but a true, biblical, deep love. A love that is anchored in knowledge of God and discernment. Look at verse 9 again. It says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Let me ask a question. You can just answer this in in your own head. Have you ever prayed for someone's knowledge? That may seem odd. I think it does seem odd to a lot of us, but it shouldn't. It's only odd because we live in a postmodern culture that doesn't value knowledge and truth. But Paul often prayed for knowledge for those he loved. In fact, it might be what Paul prayed for the most. Let me just give you a couple examples. Again, Philippians 1.9, it says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Philemon 6, and I pray, I pray that, this is his prayer, I pray that, that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. Colossians 1, 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that, this is Paul's prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1.16, or Ephesians 1.16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that, here's the prayer, that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Did you hear that? <laughs> Just repetitive. Wisdom, revelation, knowledge, enlightenment. Just in case you didn't get it, that you may know. Ephesians 3.18, Paul prays that the church may have the strength to comprehend. With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know. He prays that they would know the love of Christ that, that surpasses knowledge. Even though you can't know it, I pray that you do know it. Paul often prayed for knowledge for those he loved. He wanted them to know the truth. He wanted them to know God and his goodness. So he prayed for that. In Philippians 1.9, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, the Greek word translated knowledge here is a specific word. There's a couple different words that... that uh, translate knowledge. We have one word, we translate them knowledge, but there's a couple different Greek words, and Paul uses them. They're, they're found throughout the uh, New Testament, but, but this is a specific word. It's related to transcendent knowledge. 
In fact, all 15 times Paul uses this word in his letters, it refers to a knowledge of God or of Christ. And look at what Paul does in verse 9. He connects this type of knowledge to love. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. One commentator wrote this. We must understand that Christian love is never a matter of sentimentality. Uh, Christian love comes from a work of the Holy Spirit bringing the revelation of Christ through the Word of God. And the more you are in the Word, the more your knowledge of God and Christ will increase, and the more your love will overflow. There's a connection between love and knowledge. The greater your knowledge is of God, the greater potential you have to love. Let me just say that again. The greater your knowledge is of God, the greater potential you have to love. But that's only true if we do something with that knowledge. And that's why Paul adds the word discernment. With knowledge and all discernment. To have knowledge without discernment is like, kind of like having a car without gas. Or car is valuable, but, but without gas, it really doesn't do a lot. Or maybe a better analogy, as I was thinking about this, is, is having a car, but, but not having a driver's license, or not knowing how to drive it at all. It's kind of pointless. This is the same with knowledge and discernment. The word discernment is related to wisdom. In fact, it's only used once in the New Testament here, but it's used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and we see this related to the word wisdom. It means something like practical insight, the insight that, that informs our conduct, and how we live. It's the application of knowledge in the words. It's, it's knowing God's word and applying it to our life, to your thinking especially. And therefore, your actions, if you're applying God's word to your thinking, it's going to come out in your action. And it's doing something with the knowledge that we get from God's word. And guess what? When you know God's word well, and you're studying God's word, you're in God's word, and you're applying it, guess what happens? It produces an abundance of love. That's why Paul prays in verse 9, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Love without knowledge and discernment is empty. Hear that? Love without knowledge and discernment, it's empty. It's just squishy, spineless sentimentalism. It's not true, deep, godly, biblical love. Therefore, it's the knowledge of God's word and the discernment that comes out of that knowledge that anchors our love in truth. And it produces an abundance of deep, godly, real love. I've said this before, and I'll say it a number of times again. Truth without love is harsh. We're to speak truth in love. You speak truth... Without love, it's harsh, and there's a number of Christians that I know that love to speak truth, but they speak it harshly. Again, truth without love is harsh, but love without truth 
is not love. Did you hear that? But love without truth is not love. And this brings me to my second point this morning, the purpose. Again, in verse 9, Paul is praying, there's a request. He's praying that the abundance of love, there would be abundance of love with knowledge and discernment, so that, here's the purpose, so that, look at verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. Listen, this type of love, grounded in truth and knowledge and discernment, this type of love that approves what is excellent is completely different than, than how the world defines love. We need to understand this as Christians. Worldly love is not real love. Hijack that word from, from Scripture. Worldly love means something completely different than biblical love. Because worldly love divorces love from truth and knowledge. In fact, worldly love is often anti-knowledge or against truth. It doesn't approve what is excellent. It approves everything or anything, even sin, and maybe especially sin. Let me just show you what I mean and give you just an example, and I think it will click. If you saw a man dressed as a woman in our culture, and you spoke truth to that person, in love. And he said, you're not a woman, you're a man. No matter how kind or gentle you say that, what's the world going to call this? Hateful. Unloving. Because again, worldly love has divorced love from truth. In fact, worldly love approves anything, even lies, even sin. Let me give you another example. What if a young lady is pregnant and wants to get an abortion, and you tell her the truth, that you shouldn't do that, that's a baby, and you come with all the evidence, just facts, and you're showing her, like, it's a baby inside you. It's murder if you get an abortion. What's the world going to call this? Unloving. Even hateful. Again, because worldly love has completely divorced love from truth and knowledge. Worldly love is nothing more than just being nice. It's, it's an inch deep. It's just being nice. It's niceness. It's about as deep as it goes. But biblical love is different. Paul prayed that love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. True love produces the approval of what is excellent. Paul prayed that the church's love would, would produce in them a love for what is excellent, for what is beautiful, for what is true, for what is good. In fact, Paul, pray, uh, Paul says this in Philippians 8, or chapter 4, verse 8. He says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, if there is 
any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, Paul doesn't even want you to think about other things. And biblical love produces a love for excellent things, honorable things, just things, pure things, lovely things, commendable things, not debased things, not lies, evil, wrongdoing, ugliness. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13.4. This is the clearest passage on love in all of Scripture. And most of us have this memorized. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. In other words, it approves what is excellent. It loves what is true. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. This is why I think it's, it's actually unloving to go to a homosexual wedding. Because love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. If you are celebrating, rejoicing, wrongdoing, that's not love. It's not love. Listen, biblically, love says I can't rejoice in that. It's a lie. It's not a real wedding. It's not a real marriage. It's wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Just a side note, and I'm sure you guys are feeling this and see this in the world, but isn't this what the world wants us to do? It wants us to rejoice at wrongdoing. There's a shift at some point. I don't know when this has happened, but it used to be that our culture just wanted us Christians to tolerate sin, to keep our opinions to ourselves, but that's changed. Now the world demands that we celebrate sin. And if we don't, we're considered bigots, homophobic, ignorant, hateful, But listen, this is so important. It's a sin. I want you to hear this. It's a sin to celebrate sin. Did you hear that? It's a sin to celebrate sin. It's unloving. It's unloving to celebrate wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. True love always produces a desire and approval for what is excellent, not for what is debased, earthly, worldly, sinful. And that's the purpose of Paul's prayer. He prays that the church's love, knowledge, and discernment would grow. It would grow so that they may approve what is excellent. Now, I want to be clear because it goes far beyond just the approval of, of the good over the bad. That's, that's kind of basic. The, trans, uh, the word translated excellent in Greek means something like 
worth more than or superior to. There's a comparison going on here. Therefore, it's not just that Paul wants the church uh, to be able to approve the holy over, over the evil or the righteous over the unrighteous or the, the good deed over the sinful one. That, that's just a given. That's basic Christianity. Christianity 101. Remember, this is a mature church that Paul is praying for. Paul, Paul's praying for something deeper. He's praying for, for the church that, that the church would approve what is excellent or superior over what is just okay. Often, we have to make decisions between what is okay, not necessarily morally sinful within itself, versus what is excellent. And he is praying that through love, knowledge, and discernment, the church would always approve what is excellent. One pastor put it this way, Christians who live at the noblest level of devotion to God and and his will are single-minded. They are, they are highly focused and, and do not become preoccupied by the countless distractions that inevitably come their way. Aren't there just so many distractions in our lives? Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians 10.23, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but, but not all things build up. There are a lot of distractions in our world. Things that are okay within themselves, not necessarily evil. What Paul is praying for is that the church would be highly focused and and preoccupied with the excellent. the, The things that bring the most glory to God. Again, look at Philippians 1, verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. When we uh, prove what is excellent, when we are, are focused on the things of God, the, the things that are helpful, the things that, that build up, when we are not distracted by the things of this world, even, even things that are good or okay, it will produce a purity within our lives, and, and that's what Paul's praying for. And look at verse 10. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Once again, as we're going to see throughout the book of Philippians, Paul has a future-oriented mindset. Paul is praying that we would we'd live our lives in light of the day of Christ, that we would seek purity knowing the day is near. And judgment is coming. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Pure means something like unmixed. If you have something that's like pure gold, it's unmixed. Therefore, in the context here, it's, it's unmixed with sin, or, or probably a, a better understanding is unmixed motives without hidden motives. When you look at the, this word, that's why the NASB translates this word sincere. It's a good translation, pure and sincere. They're both good translations. Having a sincere motives. Blameless means not giving offense, but probably more has to do with not causing someone else to stumble or sin. Therefore, you can see the progression here. When when you have knowledge of God through his word, and you apply that knowledge to your life by discerning what is good and approving what is excellent, the life that that will produce is one of purity, 
pure motives, blamelessness, not, not causing offenses or, or causing others to sin. And according to Paul, this, this is all the result of love. Listen, biblical love is just so much more deep, so much more rich than the shallow worldly love that we see today. Paul is praying for a real love, a love that produces godly character. Therefore, his request again is love. The purpose, the purpose of this request is that the the church would approve what is excellent and therefore be pure and blameless. And look at verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, filled in Greek is a perfect passive participle. The, the perfect tense means it's something that happened in the past but has continual effects in the present. Something that happened in the past but it's affecting me ongoing in, in the present. Passive voice means that, that it's something that's happened to us. We didn't, we didn't do it. It's happened to us. Meaning, when we were saved and we put our faith in Christ, we were filled with his righteousness. His righteousness was imputed to us, meaning, meaning God treated us as if we lived Christ's life, completely righteous life. And at the same time, God treated Christ on the cross as if he lived our lives. This is called double imputation in theology, but maybe better just to, to call it the great exchange. Our sinfulness was exchanged for Christ's righteousness. But that didn't mean that our deeds all of a sudden became righteous. Instead, when we were saved, we started the slow process called sanctification, where we were slowly starting to become more and more like Christ in our deeds and in our actions. So when Paul says, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's something that has happened to us, passive. We were filled, past tense, but it has ongoing effects in our life. We are becoming more and more like Christ. We are bearing more and more fruit of that righteousness. Again, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. True righteousness only comes through faith in Christ. True righteousness only comes through faith in Christ at salvation. It's a, a foreign righteousness. It's a righteousness not from within ourselves. But, but the fruit of that righteousness makes us more and more like Christ as we daily learn to follow him and trust him more and more. And this is what Paul is praying for. This brings me to my last point this morning, the result. The result very end of verse 11 to the glory and praise of God listen when when our love abounds with knowledge and discernment when we approve what is excellent and therefore are pure and blameless when when we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ the result is simple God is glorified God is glorified. Listen again, Paul's main request in this prayer is love. 
That's his main request. But the heart of his prayer, the motive or, or the purpose, is the glory of God. And isn't that exactly how Jesus taught him to pray? Think of Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus said this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be glorified, God. God, glorify your name. Keep your name holy, God. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. And that's exactly how Paul prayed to the glory and praise of God. So the result of Paul's prayer is simple, the glory of God. Let me just read uh, a little section from uh, Kent Hughes' commentary on on Philippians. I just thought this was good. Let me kind of read about this passage. He says this. What the apostle has outlined has relevance for those of us who care at all for our families and the body of Christ. Certainly, we must pray for our jobs and our finances and our health and our children's grades and friendships, but if that is it, we have missed it. We need love to overflow up to God and out to others. We need to have our our love ride and expand upon an increasing knowledge of God as revealed in Christ Jesus, because the more we know of him, the more we will love him. We need to grow in all discernment practical insight, and common sense for living. We need to be able to weigh the choices before us and choose what is excellent, the best. We need to be ready for the day of Christ. We need to be transparently pure and stand upright before Christ in that day. And as we stand tall, our lives need to be hung heavy with with the fruit of righteousness that, that comes through Jesus. We need our lives to be a doxology to the glory and praise of God as part of the endless joyous commitment to God's glory. What an amazing prayer by Paul. All to the glory of God. Let me just end the sermon with this this morning. Philippians 1, 9 through 11, it's just, as a, just a great example to us. A great example of, of how to pray. If you don't know what to pray for when you, you are praying for a loved one, why not just use Philippians 1, 9 through 11 as a guide? Pray that, that their love, this person that you love, that their love may, may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that, that that person may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Pray that they would be filled with the the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And pray, pray all of this to the glory and praise of God and his glorious grace. Let's pray. Your Lord, our Father in heaven, this is our prayer. 
I, I just thank you and praise you, Lord, for inspiring Paul not just to pray this daily for the church at Philippi over and over again in his heart, but, but that he would write this in his letter because it was so part of his being, the, this praying for the church and what he prayed for, Lord, that this would become an example for us to pray. We thank you for that, Lord, and we ask the same request as Paul, that, that as a church, Lord, our love would abound more and more, but, but not a shallow love, not a worldly love, not a, not a love that's an inch deep, Lord, but a love with knowledge and all discernment. So that we as a church, Lord, may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. God, we pray that each individual Christian in our, in our church, Lord, would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We pray all of this, Lord, would glorify you. In your son's precious and beautiful name, we pray. Amen.